Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. Long busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. Condition was in. WBZ, you are Jay talking. It's D Day, and I take that seriously. We're gonna have two segments uh, about the, the the military, and the first will be about World War One. The second will be about World War Two. I'm thrilled to have Stephen. Van Ivra with us, who is a MIT political science professor, uh, but he's a historian primarily. He teaches his political science by way of history. Am I kind of right? That's right. Thanks for being with us. We're it's gonna, a pleasure. We're going to deal with World War I first. And I guess I would like to ask you first, what was going on just prior to the war, uh, tectonic stresses, geopolitical forces. How'd they get that thing going? Yeah. As, as folks seemed to think it was pretty smooth sailing, but there were obviously tensions underneath. There was some something going on. What was going on? In fact, the, the war's really particularly interesting more than others as how it started because it really came out of a clear blue sky. There hadn't been any uh, major war in Europe for 44 years, and there was a common view that, hey, haven't had one in a long time. We won't have another one. And a lot of the problems that had been plaguing Europe uh, up to that time had just been solved. Earlier, the, the powers had been quarreling over, uh, like, who got what chunks of Africa, and uh, they'd solved that one. And the Germans had been making trouble trying to unify themselves for many years, and they'd solved that one. So it's like, it's like the Big Bang. It's like a war that really came out of nowhere. And um, if you look at what actually got it going— um, it, it really was a war. It, it was started by the Austrians and the Germans. That's what I was going to ask you. Who yeah. started the war? You know, at the bottom and line why? Austrians and Germans wanted to shake things up. And um, in, in my opinion, which is, uh, I'm a little harder on the Germans than some people, um, the Austrians decided that their survival required smashing Serbia. Austria was a country split into 11 different nationalities. Uh, a large chunk of them were, were basically South Slavs, meaning they were uh, Serbs, Croats, and, and Slovenians. And the Austrians have been sort of trampling on those folks for, for uh, uh, scores of years, hundreds of years, really. And the Serbs and the rest of the South Slavs were, were plenty angry about it, and they wanted to form their own unified country. And to do that, they wanted to tear off this chunk of Austria that was inhabited by Serbs. 
And the Austrians uh, feared that if that happened, their whole country would fall apart because then all the different groups would want to secede. And, you know, like I said, they were 11 different nationalities. So it was like a, a duel to the death between these two countries, Serbia and Austria. Serbs saying, hey, you know, we got to take a chunk of you and um, uh, stop stepping on all of us. And the Austrians saying, well, fine, we got to smash you because you're a threat. But they couldn't do it by themselves. They were going to need the Germans to have their back. Exactly. Austria wasn't going to make a move on the Serbs and really couldn't have done it without the Germans supporting them. So the Germans made the big decision. And it's not clear when they made it. I, I think they actually made it in 1912, okay? Because that's in that year, Serbia won a war against its neighbors and doubled its size. It became twice as powerful as it had been earlier. We don't think much of Serbia. It's just a small little country. But Correct. then it was a much more important country. Correct, yeah. And it, it was still uh, only a fraction of the population of Austria, but it was one heck of a tough country. It had just been through two uh, big wars against the Bulgarians, uh, first against the Ottomans, then against the Bulgarians. Very tough fighters, very experienced um, and they were a real threat to Austria. Uh, and, and the idea that also that they would subvert Austria, that they were going to kind of sending a message to the Austrian Slavs saying, please revolt. That was a, another a way they threatened them. So they were a significant power. But like you said, the big decision was that the Germans decided, hey, we've got to join the Austrians in, in solving this Serb problem. It's Why? Smashing Why did they? What was their dog in the race? Their dog in the race was that uh, they saw Austria as their only ally, at which they were. Uh, they had three major adversaries, Russia, France, and Britain were all against the Germans. They it formed the Triple Entente, as it was, which was a loose kind of alliance. And Austria was the only European power that was friendly to Germany. And by the way, the Germans had made their own mess here. Uh, if you go back a few years, they had only one adversary, which was uh, France. But by being bellicose and waving the big stick in everybody's face and being uh, basically the jerks of Europe for about 20 years, they had um, alienated everybody else, and now they were down to one friend. So they said, okay, we got only one friend. They're being threatened. They might fall apart if we don't uh, help them deal with this threat. So let's not only give them permission to smash Serbia, let's push them to do it. So and let's organize a crisis that gives them an excuse. And their plan was to have the Austrians invade Serbia and partition it and just smash it, chop it to pieces. And the Serbs were basically Russians who were not the pals of the Germans as well. So they would, they'd be, they'd like to see Serbia smashed as well. Correct. I, I mean, they, I would say the Serbs are a Slavic, uh, you know, language group people who, you know, their language is similar to Russian and they were allied with Russia. They were friendly with Russia. Uh, the Russians uh, allied with them, not though, not just because of this whole pan-Slavic thing where they were both a Slavic people, but the Russians also wanted to keep Serbia alive because they were afraid that if Serbia got smashed by, if the Austrians smashed Serbia, and the Germans, you know, d did it jointly. Then the next thing is you'd have the Germans running all the way down to Constantinople and cutting off the Russian sea traffic from the Black Sea down into the Mediterranean. If you get your maps out, you'll realize that um, the Russians depend on having free travel through what is now sort of Istanbul and that, you know, this, this the um, the Dardanelles there, and uh, roughly a third of the Russian uh, uh, international traffic in those days, all of southern Russia's grain was exported through the Dardanelles. Where are the Dardanelles? It's runs, it's a, like a, a river, it looks like on the map, running from the Black Sea down through Turkey and then down into the Med. And so if you're Russia, this may sound counterintuitive, but the Russians have only one clear water way year-round wow. to export stuff, which is through that southern area. Up in the north, they're frozen in during the winter. Out in the east, they can't get there. So where, what country, what current countries did it run through? Like Bulgaria? Turkey. Just Turkey? Just Turkey. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, if you ever visit Istanbul, it sits right on the 
the the the straits. This this sort of river type. Okay. Flowing. Yeah, you know, it looks like a river. So, in addition to the geopolitical things going on, Germany was generally acting crazy. Yes. Why? In in what way and why? Germany um, had. It's one of the great hinges of history. Is the Germans went from being, shall we say, very moderate and um, uh, satisfied with the status quo to being the sort of the crazy guys of Europe in 1888. Wow, that was the year, and everything went downhill from there. And what happened that year was the king died. Oh, and the old king was replaced by this somewhat more wild and crazy guy, Kaiser Bill, Kaiser Wilhelm, and he kicked out. The German Chancellor, who was Mr. Clever, Moderate, Let's Solve Problems, dude, Bismarck, okay, who, who, whose view was— And they weren't united at this time. They were ununited? No, they had been united. They had been united. Okay. Bismarck earlier, who I think was a genius-level guy, his big project was, let's unify all these little German countries that were all separated and uh, make them into one country. And he did that in 1870. And it was kind of a, a really brilliant show. What were some of the names of those little countries? Oh, Mecklenburg and, you know, uh, um, Bavaria and— Okay, things that we think of as regions Hesse. regions now were sort of countries. Yes, yes. There were like 30 countries. If you go back, you look at a map, 1861, Germany's chopped into 30 countries. Wow. And it's like the doormat of Europe uh, up until that time because everyone uh, like just plays them against each other and has wars on their territory. And so, really? You know, hey, we're sick okay. of that. Yeah, go back to the 30 Years' War. Europe used all of Germany as a sort of battleground, and as a result, one-third of the people of Germany were killed. And so Germany was was acting in a way that you referred to as crazy. Right. And well, what happens they is had this sort Bismarck of, gets, kick, gets kicked out yeah. when the king changes, and then this new Kaiser comes in. He says, hey, we're done with this. Let's respect the status quo stuff. We want more, okay? We want to big, build a big navy and go take things overseas, and we also want to expand our influence on the European continent. And at first they try to do it by intimidation, like let's – Let's uh, shake our fist at France. Let's shake our fist at, uh, at other, other people. There's a couple of big crises of the Germans engineer, 1904, 1907, 1911. And then they finally make this big, in my opinion, they make this military move in 1914. All right. And they're also, this is a country that more than others are uh, kind of consumed by or operate under social Darwinism. How'd they get that way and what's that mean? And how did it sort of... Yeah, the historians agree that there was this strange idea... Uh, tended to um, uh, kind of uh, pervade a German society. Social Darwinism, which is the idea that you apply Darwin's idea of natural selection to societies and to countries. The idea of being competition is good, and eventually the strong will crush the weak, and that's a good thing because it weeds out the undesirable and inefficient and uh, brings the best and the strongest to fore. And when you apply it to societies, it basically means that the big, you know, those who are the winners should trample under the losers, and it's fine. And it's justified. Yeah, it's justified. And in Germany, that um, manifested itself by the military having all the guns uh, be pretty bold. Well, they applied this idea to international politics. They said the same thing happens among countries. The strongest countries will eventually weed out the weakest. There will be a single dominant country that will, in the end, kind of become king of the hill. In Europe, there's going to be one country that's going to eventually take over and dominate everybody. And therefore, their policy prescription from that was um, a, a smart country strikes when they have the upper hand because otherwise if they wait, the other will get the upper hand and strike them. So whenever you're sort of on an uptrend or you're seeing that a war today will go better than a war tomorrow, strike. So there's no war. such thing as just kind of peace. Exactly. Peace <laughs> is impossible. Right. So peace is just being 
naive and lazy. You're just waiting for the bad guys to come get you if you're at peace. So, and, and the lead the lead thinker of this idea that that mattered in this whole story is a guy named Helmut von Mulkey, who was the chief of staff of the German army from 1906 until 1914. He was a Real believer in, in social Darwinism, international version. Okay, now, also, intranationally, that was the, the feeling, too. Like, in within which, the country, yes, there was a uh, social Darwinism as well. And the military felt they were at the top of the pile. They were the apex predators, and the heck with the civilians, they, they scoffed at them. They had very bad relations with the civilians. Unlike uh, the U.S. today, where there's a lot of mutual respect between military and civilian, their military uh, were like a separate society. They lived apart. They, uh, their camps were apart. They were basically aristocrats who looked down on society, both as aristocrats and as people who believe, you know, we live an honorable life in a way that civilians don't. Wasn't that um, the case in Rome, too? Yeah, it was. The okay. military were a separate caste. So it that's was also the case in some of the other European countries at that time, um, also true in Austria, uh, but especially true in, in Germany. Okay. We're already 24 minutes into our deal here now. Can you recount the events of Sarajevo on the day when Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in detail? Because I think it's a great story. Well, in fact, Even the, the part where they went up the wrong road and had yes. to back up, the whole deal. In fact, a terrible luck did play a huge role here in starting the war because this killing did play a role. It sort of teed things up for the war. It convinced a lot of Germans, hey, we got an opportunity. This killing gives us an excuse. But what was going on was the Archduke went down to Sarajevo, which was this Serbian area. A lot of Serbs lived there, and were, where people were pretty restive. And um, uh, a gang of four assassins had sneaked in from Serbia, the country, and were waiting for him. And they didn't have their act together, okay? Uh, and they, one of them was going to take a shot at the, at, the, uh, at the Archduke when he went by, uh, and one of them was going to throw a bomb, and... And all of them failed to get the job done. There was, I, I can't remember if there were four or six of them on the, on the road. The security was terrible, by the way. The guy, Potiorek, who was supposed to set the security up, just didn't, didn't do his job. So the, these, the, the Archduke and his wife were driving in this open car. So a uh, guy throws a bomb. It bounces off car. A couple guys get injured. The uh, motorcade drives on through the, the, the trap, and uh, they go have lunch. And then the czar, the, Kaiser, the uh, sorry, Archduke says, "Let's go visit the guys who were hurt in the hospital. Uh, let's, you know, change the schedule." And they drive back up the road an hour and a half later, and uh, the driver gets confused and stops the car. Um, and by pure terrible luck, he stops the car right in front of the coffee house where one of the original assassins is standing around, not knowing what to do next, with his pistol, feeling like a loser, feeling like a loser. Yeah. Gavrilo Prinkip was his name. And he walks up to the car, and he pulls the trigger twice with a pistol. And again, total luck, both shots are perfect, okay? Usually you fire a pistol twice at somebody, you know, chances are three out of four, they aren't going to die. He kills both the Archduke and the wife. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, QED, oh, my God. Uh, now, this really matters because the Archduke is the heir to the throne, and the, the current king is really old, so everyone thought this guy would be king of Austria really soon. It further matters because he's one of the more, shall we say, moderate, pragmatic people. He doesn't want a war. He doesn't think a war is the answer to Austria. Getting him off the scene changes the balance of power in Austria. Now the hawks are, uh, there's only one dove left, really, this guy, Stephen Tisha. So, um, and, and up in Berlin, the, everyone's rubbing their hands. The Germans think this is the big opportunity to start a big war. Why? Because um, 
they've got several problems. One is uh, they've they got to persuade the Kaiser, the German king, to support the war. And he's also not easy to persuade, but he's one of these monarchists. He's big on monarchy and how the rights of kings really matters. So if you go to him and say, hey, these guys, they're, 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 they're They They kill kings. We've got to do something. You get him on board. So the Germans make this decision. Let's push the Austrians right now to start the war on Serbia. And what they really have in mind is two different wars. The Germans, again, they're, they're thinking way too big at this point. They want to smash Serbia so that the Serb threat to Austria is erased and their allies, the Austrians, are okay. Second is they want to have a war with Russia. They want to have a war with Russia. It sounds crazy, but they did. And why do they want a war? It was because, in their estimation, Russian power was rising and German power was falling relative to each other over the next couple of years. So the view was, hey, if we wait two years, uh, the Russians are going to be stronger relative to us later, and they might start a war then, so we better start one now. Why were the Germans and the Russia kind of always opposing? Why were they opposed for so well, long? You, they actually hadn't been that opposed up until this point. Okay. They had, had kind of okay relations. And um, these two... Uh, this whole idea of a preventive war, it was, um, it was, it was mixed up with the Serb problem. They knew that um, if they... If hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If the Austrians smashed Serbia, the Russians would come in. So they knew they couldn't smash Serbia without fighting the Russians. Uh, and then they added to that this question of, it's the Darwinist thing, which is you just assume people are the enemy, even though they really aren't. The, the Russians did not if have... If they're not now, they will be. If they're not now, they will be. They, the, the Russians <laughs> did not have a grudge against Germany. In fact, the Russian czar, when he kind of realized in July that the Germans mean business and they're going to start a war, it was like, God bless. I mean, what's the matter? These people were actually not bad to us in 1905. And, you know, the, the two kings were cousins, actually. Uh, so, um, like you say, it's this Darwinist assumption. If they're not our enemy now, they will be soon, sooner or later. All right. It's, uh, well, we have a couple of minutes before the break. And let's see, let's try to find something with a, a short answer. Uh, but I guess nothing's got to show. No, I, I guess we'll just get started on. I talk too much. Uh, no, that, no, you, that's great. <laughs> the more you talk, the better. The more detail, the better. Because if we don't finish, you can always come back. We, the United States, steered clear of this war for a long time. Why? You know, before World War One, Americans had no concept that we had any interest in anything that went on in Europe. And um, so, before 1914, if you asked Americans. Uh, Let's imagine some big war breaks out in Europe. Is that bad for us? The answer was, who cares? It's so far away back then with transportation the way it was. It was just really far away. Yes. Well, it's also the case, I think, that we had a rather undeveloped debate about foreign policy and strategy in those days. Because once Americans thought about it, kind of 1917 and then again in 1941, hey, guys, how would we all feel if a single country took over Europe? Is that good? And the answer was, oh, that's a problem because Europe is a place with a huge economy 
great resources, and a single state controlling that place could build a huge war machine, right. inject power to our hemisphere, and threaten us. And that's really why we, it's one of the reasons we got into the war in 1917. It's the key reason we got into World War II. That's the real reason we wanted to fight Hitler. And it's the key reason we waged the Cold War, which was the danger the Soviets would take over the whole Eurasian. Uh, so it wasn't about worrying about nuclear annihilation. It was about economics. You yes. are an economist, by the way. Yes. And you probably kind of. see everything through economist classes. Well, a little. <laughs> but, but actually, this was the, the lens through which the, the authors of the Cold War saw it. If you go back and read what George Kennan and others said, Walter Lippmann, the, the danger we hear was uh, that the uh, Eurasian landmass would be dominated by a single state that could then have enough industrial power. It would have had more industrial power than the U.S. All right. Wow. It would have, would have created a, a war machine. How prepared were we to deal? Well, at the beginning uh, of the war, the U.S. had basically no poker chips to play. The U.S. military was tiny compared to all the European ones. And that's one reason why the Europeans um, didn't care what the Americans think thought. And if the U.S. had tried to prevent the war at that point, we wouldn't have been able to because we didn't have any standing military that we could have put on the table. When I was saying earlier that we could have prevented the war, the U.S. at that time had by far the largest economy in the world. Our GDP was two and a half times that of number two, which was Germany. So um, in the end, we had, if you will, more latent military power. If you want to judge you know, how much military power can a country generate in a year or two, that's the number to use. What's the GDP? And that's what happened. So we had this huge latent power. Yeah. And if we'd threatened to use it and looked like we were capable of using it and maybe had some of it already generated into military power, the Germans never would have made a move. So they the United States said, could were, have prevented World yes, War I. Yes, we could have prevented World War I. If we'd had a policy of announcing to the world, hey, we're not going to let any single state take over Eurasia, and let's just have enough military power, you know, standing power to look a little scary. Germany, How did we amass such economic might simply because we were big, or did we have something else going on? That's a great question, but, you know, we were just blessed a thousand ways from Sunday, you know, this incredible country with all these resources. So the natural resource, if we just have a lot of... A lot of real estate, and there's good stuff in that real I estate. I also think we had a democracy, which was crucial to having good social order. Uh, we had uh, um, we made some good decisions about education, the land-grant education system. And right, um, 1890, turn of the century, was a lot of inventing going on. Things were changing oh yeah. wildly that way. That must have helped. Well, and but of course, we were in the middle of it because we were kind of part of the cutting-edge knowledge revolution. We invested in education. You know, people forget those land-grant schools that were all, you know, a big part of uh, growing our, our brains. Um, and immigration. We uh, had, a, you know, immigration in the late 1800s from, from Germany and uh, Ireland and so on. Grew the population and uh, that. Okay, let's dig, dig into the war. What was the Germans' plan? German war plan was basically, um, it was a, kind of a crazy plan. Is that the uh, Schifflin plan? Schlieffen plan, Schlieffen. Yeah. okay. Yes, yes. Uh, Schlieffen had this uh, uh, plan was, okay, um, H-hour, uh, balloon goes up, you invade Belgium uh, and sweep through Belgium into France and, and knock the French out and conquer the whole place in 40 days. So they don't get involved, so they don't help Russia. Well, you, you assume that Russia and France are both going to fight you because they're allies. So you're really all going after, the real, your real goal is knock the Russians off. Right? Okay. But you feel you, you figure you've got to knock the French off, too, because they're allies. You, you could do French first and then deal with Russia, That's right? That's the plan. Okay. That was Schlieffen. So they don't have to watch their back when they turn around and go to exactly. Russia. Okay. Exactly. Now, this was a change from the older plan. They had a previous plan under this older guy uh, up until the 1890s, uh, which was to stand on the defense in the West and then attack only in the East, which I think was a much better plan. 
But um, Schlieffen had this new idea, which was basically cr uh, this wild and crazy quick offensive in the West, which had to go perfectly, okay? And then uh, move all, the whole army on trains to the east before the Russians get to the frontier, because the Russians, the Russians mobilize slowly. So it's like, we'll nail France while Russians are still waking up, getting out of the bed, and then nail the Russians. And the whole plan uh, didn't, well, here's what's wrong with the plan. Uh, by invading Belgium, they brought the British into the war because the Belgians had the, the British had this view: Hey, we don't want any any country um, knocking off uh, the Low Countries. Uh, and also by invading France, they um, made the whole French public uh, very mobilized. Uh, the French government would have had a hard time riling up the French people for a war of aggression against Germany to save Russia. Nobody liked Russia. It was a horrible country run by these you know, horrible, horrible people. Horrible people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, horrible okay. aristocrats. It was a very okay. cruel, you know, ugly place. Uh -huh. And um, so the the Germans did this huge favor to the Allies. They brought the Br British in by invading Belgium. They riled the French public up by invading France. Uh, by invading Britain, they eventually brought in the U.S. The U.S. kind of got involved because they. Uh, were uh, friendly with the British, and it was really the U.S. that decided the war, okay? The, the Germans might still have won this war uh, if the U.S. had not come in. If you look, if you replay the game uh, in 1918, they might have knocked everybody out, but the U.S. came in and, and put the W up for the, for the Entente. Here's a test, not a test, but something interesting. Say the Germans had, the U.S. did not get involved. The Germans had won. They became uh Hegemonistic, is that the word? Correct. They were Get kings. Yeah. What would have happened then? That's a great question. If, would they have been nipped at? Nipped at? Would there have been some coalition that came and took them down? What, what do you think would have happened? My own view is it would have been way better than what did happen. In other words, in a funny way, it would have been better if the Germans won the war. Uh, I think they would have uh, uh, conquered. Um, they, would have, they, they had huge goals. They were going to try to establish basically informal rule over France and annex Belgium and create a huge uh, empire in, in Russia, which they already did. I think, though, that they were coming to the end of the age of empire and uh, controlling societies was getting harder and harder because of small arms and uh, spreading literacy. So uh, governing people who really don't want being governed was getting to be a much tougher job in 1920 uh -huh. than it was before. So I'm imagining they would have just basically found themselves facing constant social unrest and um, rebellion, uh, and they would have gotten sick of it. And they wouldn't have gained a whole lot of strength from the areas they conquered. Uh, and so you would have had, I mean, they were a particularly nasty country. And let's not pretend their empire would have been sort of a benign, typical average empire. Their military had a sort of murderousness to it that other militaries didn't have at that time. You can see that in the way they treated the Belgians and in the genocide of the Herero. They, they, another little episode in this history is that they were in Africa at that time and they there were four genocides in the 20th century. People forget the fourth one, which was the massacre of the Herero people in southwest Africa by the Germans. But I still think that in the end, they... They know, simply would have contracted. Fast forward 20 years. Just too difficult. Yes. They'd be sitting down there in a French Riviera drinking wine and, and you know trying to get along with people, and then they'd go home. And things went badly. Yes. Instead, things went terribly. In other words, one of the great disasters in world history is that the uh, Versailles Peace, which was supposed to be the peace that would end all wars, was badly designed and led to World War II. And for that, the U.S. gets the blame because really Woodrow Wilson was in the catbird seat. He designed the Versailles Peace. And, um, you know, I'm a political scientist, so it's kind of a oops, uh, sorry about that thing for us because he was a political scientist and he, was, he harvested all the social science that was known at the time. Yeah. 
And uh, what was his key mistake? Key mistakes. The single worst mistake he made was not dealing with German bad ideas. He didn't focus on the the, the core problem of Germany, which is these people are drinking a lot of bad bathwater. They're their, their schools are full of lies, their media is full of lies, their universities are full of lies. You have to seize control of their whole national information system and, um, and, and drain it of the bad stuff and, and, and get it more truth-oriented. And the Americans didn't do that. They, we never even occupied Germany. There was no occupation of Germany. So since they didn't, it was easy for a Hitler to spark that. Exactly. Uh, well, what happened was in the 20s, because the, uh, the, the sort of German myth machine, myth-making machine wasn't dealt with, instead the German government in those years set up this um, myth-making organization, the Ausfertiges, uh, it was called the Kriegsschulreferat, the War Guild Office. It was a secret office de devoted to spreading lies about World War I and especially about who started World War I. And they had this whole kind of constant PR a message sent through schools, school books, history books, you name it, saying, we didn't start this war. The Russians started it. The Russian, the, the British started it. We've been treated terribly cruelly. We, 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 our neighbors are a bunch of nasty, vicious people who started a war, blame us for it, and then drain us of, of reparations and what a nasty bunch of neighbors we have. And Hitler, if you want to understand how he rose to power, a key way he rose to power was, was exploiting this uh, victim narrative. If, if, if you believe that narrative, you'd be enraged, right? And, and the Germans did believe it. And my point about Wilson and the, and the peace is uh, the uh, Allies let the Germans continue to tell that lie. They didn't attend to this key problem of ideas. Key difference with World War II is that after World War II, the Allies did deal with the problem of German bad ideas. They did occupy the country. They did reform the school books. They did reform the history system. They did it kind of a sort of a herky-jerky way. It wasn't very efficiently done. But the Germans, you know, got a big, shall we say, reform, a good dose of the truth after 45. And then the Germans took the ball themselves in the 70s and developed this really quite beautiful culture of truth-telling about history. The country in the world today that takes most seriously the duty to tell the truth about their own past crimes and wrongs is the Germans. They, they get the gold star for it. So when you go visit a Sachsenhausen or a, an Auschwitz, you'll walk from the, from the train station through neighborhoods. And... When I do that, I, I get angry at the the people that live in the houses because they had to know what was going on. And, the, and there would be people that say, well, it wasn't the German people's fault. Uh, they couldn't have done anything. But it feels like, and it, it also sounds like what you're saying, that they kind of wanted it. And they wanted it because they'd been fed and believed this victim narrative. It seems like they were kind of on board and that they have some a lot of culpability. They're not really off the hook. It really was them. Yes. They're well, not innocent Civilians. I would blame them for basically electing a demagogic leader who hated uh, or who, you know, uh, advised conflict against Germany's neighbors. Um, the Holocaust is, I think, I separate World War II into two wars. The wars against the countries, Hitler's war against the states, and the war against the Jewish people, the Holocaust. And I tend to think of them in separate boxes. Um, the Holocaust, uh, responsibility for that, um, goes way back. It has a lot to do with the Christian church and Christian teachings against the Jews, which in my view kind of put the, the, the uh, tinder on the floor of the forest um, and made it possible for any demagogue to, to sort of sell this thing. But Hitler never really did sell the Holocaust well to the German people. It was not a popular idea among the Germans. And the key reason he set up the death camps was to hide the Holocaust from the German public because he feared there would be public opposition to it if it were known. Originally, the Holocaust was conducted kind of in the open, 
the German army had these Einsatzgruppen, these killing units that followed along behind the army, who and they murdered the, the Jews and others, Slavs, uh, with firing squads and gas. But then Hitler said, hey, I'm, I'm nervous about too many people finding out about this, e including the German people, who I would have said they were sort of bigots. Uh, they, they were um, sort of mildly, cruelly anti-Semitic. But the, if you put the idea of a Holocaust to a referendum in Germany in 1939, it would have been voted down. It's interesting you divide it up. Do you think that the Holocaust was a drain on the war effort? Yes. And they might have had a better chance to win the war if they hadn't engaged in the Holocaust? Absolutely. Uh, one thing about Hitler is you know, he, he just couldn't restrain himself from killing people. Uh, if he just delayed his his wonderful dream of mass killing the people he wanted to kill for about a year, he might have won the war. Was he? Did he hate them genuinely, or was it more political, a, a, a sort of playing to his base? My uh, version of Hitler's uh, anti-Jewish madness is that he was a true believer in this vicious, horrible document, the um, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was this forgery that came out of the Russian secret police in 1903. And uh, it basically accused the Jewish community in some crazy way of having a, a, a gang of conspirators who were taking over the world and going to destroy the whole world, uh, the, the, the elders of Zion. And this, this forgery uh, hit Germany only after World War I, and among the first groups to grab onto it were the Nazi leaders. This guy Rosenberg, who was Hitler's chief ideologist, brought it right away to Berlin, put it in the hands of the Nazi elite, and it seems like Hitler believed it all. He actually believed that the Jewish people were a threat to Germany. Was there something in his childhood or his early days that made him likely to believe such a thing? Well, he grew up in Vienna, which was sort of uh, in, in, infused with anti-Semitism. But um, I think that the, the, the protocols, it, it seems strange to say, this one document could have had such an impact, but it really put his both hatred and fear on steroids. And I might add, there's a lesson here about hate. And people think hateful messages don't lead to bad consequences. They do. They do. Everyone should be concerned about the purveyance of hateful thought. and Hateful speech. Yes, hateful speech. The whole problem now we face with social media being used as a vehicle for it, this is not a, not a joke. Um, that the Imagine if Hitler had had social media. Imagine if he had. It would I mean, have helped him. He, Right, I, probably exactly the same thing would have happened, only faster, I guess. I don't know. Well, of course, he, he had controlled media, so he had no problem reaching people because he owned it all. Uh, and the sad thing is he was good at using but it. Social media was, was film at the time, right? Film and radio. And he had film brief radio install. And, and there. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a break My, uh, on WBZ. We're here to talk. That's why we're here to talk. Now, what do you say? No, it's all. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay, WBZ News Radio 1030. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I know how this sounds, but something told me to turn on the radio. No voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio's on busy all night long. You just have to listen. 
Jay talking, Bradley Jay. You're up next, it won't be long. WBZ. Can I talk? Talk to you. You gotta call me while the hour is gone. News Radio 1030. We gotta call for the Jay talking show. We gotta lie what you say. Bradley Jay. BZ, WBZ, you're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five, and we'll continue talking about uh, the real nitty gritty, World War One, and later we'll get to World War Two. After the top of the hour, we are with Stephen Van Ivra from MIT, political science department, but seems kind of like a history teacher to me, right? Kind of, yeah. All right, now let's before we get to the results, what happened as a result, some of the things we live with today. The results of World War One, it almost didn't happen. It was a close call. So many things could have happened to prevent it. Correct. Yes. All, all the tumblers had to fall in place. That's right. What are some of the t- the tumblers that they hadn't fallen in place would have prevented it? Yeah, this war was not inevitable. It was a very close run thing. Um, the way I kind of sum it up is that uh, there were three uh, key leaders in Germany um, when uh, the crisis, when the whole you know business begins in June. Kaiser Wilhelm, who's the king, he's an absolute ruler. He's sort of on paper got the authority to order anything. But he's really kind of a loosey, loose, loose reins dude. And there's two other guys, very powerful, the chancellor, Batemann Holweg, and the chief of the army, uh, Helmut von Moltke. And um, they all kind of agree to start the crisis. But the Kaiser, um, he's, he's never really on board with the idea of having a war. He's, he's being a bit manipulated here. And these guys have told him that they can get this crisis going and smash Serbia, and don't worry, the Russians won't intervene. Um, and he realizes um, it, when the crisis is really blowing up that things are spiraling out of control. And he's, he says, I don't think this is smart. Let's stop this crisis. And he, and he moved, says this to who? He says it to his chancellor, Batman Holweg, and his foreign minister, Yagov, von Yagov. And they say... Sorry? Well, first, they, they kind of uh, run around his back and, and delay for about a day him figuring out things are blowing up. Uh, they don't even give him a copy of the, of the ultimatum. or uh, the, the ultimatum. He, the ultimatum, he saw the ultimatum to Serbia? To Serbia, no. But he didn't, he, they don't give him the copy of the Serb reply, which was very compliant. In other words, the Serbs really came out with their hands up, if you will, uh, when they replied. And, and they offered the Germans a good deal. And Bateman says, well, let's not show that to the Kaiser because he's going to say, hey, let's cut this deal. So for a day, the Kaiser's unaware of it. Then when he finds out about it, he says, hey, he says literally, the quote is, all reasons for war have fallen to the ground. Wow. He says that. And then he says, I got an idea. Let's tell the Austrians to call off this attack on Serbia and make a deal based on this reply that basically would have the Serbs kill all these terrorists, arrest whatever, all the terrorists. So they're not a threat to us anymore. But, uh, and then we'll, they'll, we'll kind of set up a system for keeping that country from letting terrorists be based there, and we'll call it a day. Please tell the Austrians this right now, he, he says to the Batemann. Instead, Batemann and his pals cook up this diluted message, di- diluted to Austria. They delay half a day sending it, and the message they send is kind of a wishy-washy thing that doesn't really tell the Austrians they've got to uh, uh, chill. And, and stop the crisis. So they're totally insubordinate. This is shocking. This is the most amazing insubordinate act that uh, you've ever seen that you know had to do with the start of a great war. This might and be the a Kaiser l- never figures this out. He never realizes this happens. 
And the next day or two go by, and he keeps saying, hey, the Austrians haven't answered us yet. What's going on? Uh, so Batemont, totally insubordinate. How did Kaiser Bill find out about the the reply? He, he did, oh. hadn't found out for a day. How did, do you happen to know? Maybe it's too granular, well, but how did he actually find out finally? Uh, Yagoff, the foreign minister, finally gives it to him. He waits until he knows the Kaiser's in bed on uh, the night of the 27th. Tired. Yeah. So I'll deal with it in the morning. And then he, he ships it over so he can say, well, you had it. But, but of course, the Kaiser's too tired and he sleeps. How do you find out all these details? Um, who wrote these down? One happy thing is that uh, a couple of wonderful historians really devoted many years of their life to collecting all the documents. The, the most uh, great collection of all the relevant sort of details and documents was by a guy named Luigi Albertini, who was a, he was a journalist. He was a major newspaper guy in Italy. And after World War I, he said, listen, somebody's got to get this story, and I'm going to spend 10 years doing it. And he collected... Uh, pretty much all this stuff in a three-volume book that's about 3,500 pages long. And he did it with amazing accuracy. Uh, like, it, it really, he really did it right. The thing he didn't do is he uh, died before he could write an introduction that would add it all up. So it's an incredible headache <laughs> to deal with because, uh, like, Luigi, uh, okay, we got all this stuff here, but can you, can you help me, like, guide me through a little bit? And also, the index is terrible. So all the stuff is there, but it's still a lot of work to go through. Anyway, we're, we're out of time. We're out of so, time? Yeah. You're going to make me stop? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. We have to stop. So uh, you're so excellent and so detailed that we, we could do two or three nights on World War I itself, and I have a feeling that there are other topics that you'd be wonderful at addressing. I hope you had fun. I did. Fun enough to come back another time. Lots of fun. All Thank right. you for having me, Brad. Yep. If you, in 30 seconds, if there's one book for regular folks to read on this, what would you recommend? Oh, boy. I might have you read a, a guy uh, named John Roll, R-O-H-L. He wrote a book called uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II. It's just kind of a summary of this very important guy. It's a bio. Um, very good. Um, there's uh, another good book. I mean, I, I love this historian, British historian named... Um, uh, Annika Mombauer. She has a book on Moltke. Annika Mombauer. Mombauer. Yeah. Okay. There's a good BBC show. Go on YouTube and find this BBC show called The Necessary War. It's very good. It's okay. like a 50-minute show. The Necessary War. The Necessary I'm War. I'm on that. Yeah. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.